Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, February 7th, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, legal experts Christina Rodriguez and Akil Ridamar speak with Judge Denny Chen about the history of immigration law in the United States, as well as their family's personal immigration stories. Thank you. Good evening. It's great to be back here at the New York Historical Society. And so our topic is uh, immigration and the Constitution. And of course, our headlines are filled today with story after story about immigration and citizenship and related uh, issues. The federal government was shut down for 35 days recently, ostensibly over disagreements about border security. If you're wondering, by the way, my salary is protected by the Constitution. So even in the case of a shutdown, I will get paid. And although we are a nation largely of immigrants, um, immigration has become one of the most uh, divisive and contentious topics of the day. Um, But these disagreements, as you know, have been with us for years. Uh, And this evening... We're going to have a conversation about uh, the Constitution and immigration law, focusing in particular on some historical aspects of immigration uh, in this country. So first, we're going to start with a little bit of a review of of the constitutional or the key constitutional provisions and early uh, immigration uh, statutes. Um, And so uh, we're putting up now from Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the Congress shall have power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Am I right that this is the only provision in the Constitution explicitly about immigration? Well, I would argue that it's going to be the next clause, because this is about becoming a citizen Explicitly, I said. Explicitly, yes. Yeah, no, I would say Uh, naturalization isn't about immigration. (laughs) The next clause is explicitly about immigration, but I'm unusual in that respect. I don't see the word uh, immigration in the next clause, by the way. And I don't see it in the first one, with all due respect, Your Honor. It says naturalization, which is different from immigration. Lesser included. So are these two provisions the only provisions that arguably or indirectly talk about immigration in the Constitution? Well, the key is the second one, um, because yeah. the, <laughs> the key is anything that crosses a border, whether it's a bushel of wheat or a cask of rum or a human being, slave or free, that's actually commerce, in effect, with foreign nations. So this is actually a clause about stuff that crosses borders interstate or internationally. There are also some who would point to the slave trade clause, which doesn't actually explicitly mention slavery, as having something to say about migration, though mm-hmm. I, the original meaning of that clause obviously pertains to whether Congress can prohibit the slave trade. All right, so, so these were uh, uh, written uh, in... Um, um, 1787. Uh, and so what did the, the, the founding fathers have in mind when they came up with these two provisions? Um, well, that, the reason I so emphasize the second yeah. is because you say lesser included, where's the power to allow people to come to the United States to visit and they're going to go back? They're not going to become naturalized ever. And I would say, ooh, that second clause is all about the power of the federal government to decide on what terms uh, people as well as goods and services are going to come from from foreign nations to the United States or go from the United States to foreign nations. And uh, and we wouldn't want states to be in charge of that. We'd want the federal government to be in charge of that. 
well, the states were in charge of the regulation of the movement of people. And another reading is that uh, it wasn't actually uh, contemplated that there was a federal power to regulate migration and that it would be states through customs and inspection laws that would uh, channel either in or kick out uh, movements of people from around the world. And the, the naturalization clause was there because there was obvious an understanding that, first of all, there were people not born in the United States uh, at the time of the founding who ought to be naturalized. But there might be a need, uh, if people became resident, to uh, have a path to, to citizenship. Yeah, the, the states were involved in the beginning, but at some point, uh, including in in uh, the, the case of the 22 Liu Chinese women, which we did here uh, uh, as a reenactment, um, the federal government uh, uh, asserted uh, its authority. Let, let's move on to uh, this statute. This is actually the first... Uh, immigration statute, although, again, it's really about naturalization. And it provides that any alien being a free white person who's been within the United States uh, for uh, at least two years um, may be admitted to become a citizen thereof. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you had to be a free white person to be eligible to become naturalized um, as uh, um, a citizen. So, uh, you know, again, what did the founding fathers have in mind back in uh, 1790 when they were passing this? So um, one thing I want to remind you of is that this isn't in the Constitution itself. And that when you read the Constitution, you won't find the word white, and that is important. Um, You will find the word white in the Articles of Confederation. Um, which said that when the states were going to have to send um, troops to, um, to, for the for, uh, continental defense, each state had a quota, and the quota was based on its white population. Um, so the Articles of Confederation used the word white, but the Constitution doesn't. And it's important to remember also that blacks actually did serve in arms in the American Revolution. They're there at Bunker Hill. They're there in Washington's army. The Congress actually provides for paying them uh, during the, uh, the Continental Congress um, during the revolutionary period. And the word white could have been put in the Constitution, but it wasn't. South Carolina wanted it there, and it, that was rejected. Um, and one of the reasons it was rejected, because like, um, is the people in the North actually didn't want to race test. I, I just want to read you, because one complication is going to be with this statute. Well, what do you mean by white, pal? You know, uh, I don't know. You know, um, uh, which way, what, what am I? Um, and now, maybe they mean not African, but um, maybe they mean not actually from China, possibly. Um, well, were they, when, when they were debating this in 1790, were they thinking about uh, the yellow race or the Mongol race? So uh, or people I, I, from Asia? So um, in the academy today, we would say, you know, race isn't a natural biological concept. It's what we call socially mm. constructed. Um, and I want to read you something from the, um, 1778, where ordinary farmers in Massachusetts say just this. Because there are people in Mass- the, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1778 it was proposed and it had a race test for voting. It limited it to white people, and it was rejected by the people of Massachusetts, and they gave reasons, and one of the reasons that one of the towns gave, it was called Georgetown, was that word white. And so John Adams comes back and redrafts it in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So here's why they reject it. Um, because, quote, a man being born in Africa, India, or ancient American, or even being much sunburnt, Deprived them of having a vote for representative. So they're making fun of a skin color test um, way back in 1778. That's interesting. Uh, Definitely um, reflective of a greater diversity of uh, opinion than we ordinarily assume, but probably not very representative. Um, and And I think this embodies, whether it's a compromise between North and South, but it embodies a history of racial exclusion being built into uh, citizenship law, um, not to mention immigration law, where the, the racial exclusions have also been explicit and, and longer lasting. But they're exclusions that uh, existed in the law until the 1960s. I mean, the, the, the question is, what is white for these purposes comes up again in a couple of uh, cases that in the Supreme Court in the 1920s. But let me show the next piece. 
1870, the statute is amended to add aliens of African nativity and persons of African descent. And why was this added? The Civil War. And note, it's not of Asian. So there's this, yeah. now yeah. it's especially about blacks. Um, and remember, American blacks, um, American-born blacks, were citizens of the United States at the time of the Constitution. And again, they fought in Washington's army. Um, and so, um, so and, and eventually, because they don't just fight in Washington's army, well, they fight in Lincoln's army too. 180,000 blacks and blue are the margin of victory, many believe, during the Civil War, the Massachusetts 54th, you know, Denzel Washington and, and, and Matthew Broderick and, and Glory and all of that. And, and because they are maybe the margin of victory in the Civil War, there's a special yeah. uh, focus on black citizenship, and now he, even for um, black immigrants. Yeah, and, and, and the, the immigration laws over the years also recognize folks who fought in the military. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to come back to that later special on. Provisions. The, the, yes. Yeah, but so where did this leave you if you were Japanese? Uh, um, or if you were South Asian. In the 1920s, uh, in the Ozawa case, uh, the Supreme Court held that a Japanese man uh, was not white um, because uh, white means Caucasian. And then there was a case called Find, T-H-I-N-D, a South Asian man who argued, I am Caucasian. I'm from a part of India where people are Caucasian. Aryan. Uh, Aryan, yes. Uh, And the Supreme Court said... um, you might be Caucasian, but you're not white uh, in the common uh, meaning of man. So I actually, and, and we're going to share some stories at the end, some personal immigration stories. But, but so actually, because it is socially constructed, I brought my birth certificate. And according to my birth certificate, my dad they have a, um, is white. My dad is very dark-skinned Indian. And my mom, her race is Indian. So apparently I'm biracial. Who knew? You, you know, this is, this is racially constructed. This is in the 1950s. You know, how do we, how do we define these races? When I got married, I brought my um, marriage license too. They asked me again, you know, my race. My, my wife was born in India and my wife's race. We, we put down human. <laughs> <laughs> So my, just my, my birth certificate was similar in the 70s. There was no category for Hispanic or Latino. And so uh, we were white. Yeah. And, 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 and the gender stuff, too, because we, we maybe talk about how race has intersected with um, gender in all sorts of ways. On my birth certificate, I just noticed it today for the first time. They ask about my dad's occupation. He's a doctor. There's no, there's no question yeah. about the mother's the occupation, mother's occupation. <laughs> you know. So, so, so interesting, very socially constructed. Yeah. All right. So um, there's a series of, uh, of, the, of laws, the Chinese exclusion laws. We don't really have uh, – oh, first, before we do that, just quickly. It's an I mean, important feature of the, the 14th <laughs> Amendment. Uh, so the 14th Amendment has uh, the, the all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States. And we're, we're setting this up because we are going to talk about the – the topic of birthright uh, citizenship. Also important is the due process clause, which says refers to person, uh, not citizen, person, all persons. Uh, um, uh, no person may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then the equal protection clause, which also refers to um, um, a person and not to a citizen. And these provisions become very important for, for, for the cases, some of which we'll talk about now. Um, we don't have much time. Uh, the Chinese exclusion laws, uh, uh, the first one was enacted in 1882, and it's the first time that, that any group is explicitly excluded uh, by race. If you were Chinese, you could not come uh, into uh, this country. And, and the, the, the laws were amended over the years and really not repealed until 1943. Um, and these are these historic uh, political cartoons. Um, and they, you know, it shows you that back then, uh, immigration was very much in the middle of, of political discussions and, 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 and being used for, for, for other uh, purposes. Um, and um, uh, this is remarkable. I found this. This is an advertisement from a washing machine company. Um, <laughs> 
And it's and if you look in the upper left, don't use this if you want to be dirty. And you can, he's holding detergent. I mean, this this is an ad to promote the company's new washing machine. And and it's it's so it wasn't just politics; it was uh, popular culture. Uh, you want to add anything? Yeah. Well, the the impetus for the Chinese Exclusion Acts bubbled up from yeah. uh, beginning in California, where uh, Chinese immigrants first went initially in response to the gold rush, and then as part of the construction of the transcontinental railroad. Uh, when those, but, you know, they're, they're so small a number. Yeah. Why uh, uh, so much uh, strong feeling? I think that uh, when the purpose was served, uh, that happened to coincide with an yeah. economic depression. Um, and they may have been small in number, but in California, they were visible enough yeah. um, and then integrated enough because they went from uh, being part of the railroad to starting small businesses, especially laundries and other Especially kinds of laundries. Like that. yeah. so that's why you so see a connection. connection to washing um, machines. And, yeah. uh, and the Yick Hawkins is a case about laundries. Uh, and, and so it was a it, it was a classic story of obviously racial antagonism, but economic resentment and racial antagonism combining. And eventually, uh, that led to enough of a restrictionist sentiment across the country that Congress uh, responded with the Chinese exclusion. Historians acts. say that the first Chinese arrivals were were, were greeted. Uh, 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 in a friendly manner, yep. uh, curiosity, and it really uh, only uh, over time, in, in part because of the, the and, competition. And if, and if we could just take one half step back sure. on, on that, because we may have leapfrogged one of the most important points, which is just how open to immigration America and the Constitution are at the founding. So of the 39 people who mm-hmm. signed the Constitution, seven are foreign-born. Um, of the first six um, secretaries of the Treasury, four are foreign-born, including a guy named Alexander Hamilton, uh, a Gallatin. Of uh, the first three secretaries of, of uh, war, and a guy named Dallas, as in Dallas, Texas. Um, uh, of the first three secretaries of war, one is foreign-born, uh, McHenry, Fort McHenry. Of the first um, 91 congresspersons, nine, fully a tenth, are foreign-born. Of the first 10 justices on the Supreme Court, three are foreign-born. Um, and uh, Ben Franklin at the Philadelphia Convention says, we want people from abroad to come here. They'll be good for national security. We, we have a big continent to fill up. We want to sell land to them. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and um, uh, the people who actually, uh, and in England, if you're, if you're not born in England, you can't hold any office of honor, trust, or profit in the English government, whereas in America, you can be a congressperson, you can be a senator, you can be a federal judge, um, you can be a cabinet officer, there can be some special rules about presidents, um, but, it, uh, but everyone, even who is foreign-born, like Alexander Hamilton, who's a citizen at the time of the Constitution, is eligible uh, but that's early on. They want everyone to come. And then that's going to change over time. Start to change, yeah. I mean, yeah. and if, if I could add that the exclusionary, restrictionist, even racist sentiment doesn't begin with the era of Chinese immigration. When uh, in the 1830s and 40s there were high levels of Irish immigration and the influx of Catholics, uh, mm. that produced uh, mid-19th century nativism and even a political party that gained um, influence in, in cities on the East Coast. Um, and so it's called that, the Know Nothing Party, yeah. officially the American Party. Yeah. And so that's always been intertwined with this need for people to settle the country. And then uh, um, at the same time, the, the link between race and um, economic status and citizenship, uh, those have always. All right, we've got to move on here. We're going to run out of time. Immigration Act of 1917. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christina, watch it. And here is an, uh, a cartoon, and there's an early wall. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about so, this. So this is a great example yeah. of uh, the reaction to large waves of immigration. So at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there were large waves of immigration that were increasingly uh, evolving from immigration from Northern Europe, uh, mostly Protestants, to immigration from Southern Europe, mostly Catholics and Jews. And uh, there was a lot of agitation for many years uh, to try to find ways to 
to, to limit that um, immigration. And one of the mechanisms was the, the literacy test. It wasn't a test for English language ability. A test, it was a test of literacy generally in, in one's own language. And the, the idea was that there were uh, low classes of laboring people who shouldn't be um, allowed to enter the United States to, to settle, that a higher class of immigrant was necessary. And it, it took Congress overriding President Wilson's veto of the act, and two prior presidents had also vetoed the statute for this to go into effect, and it, it did in 1917. And this was also a moment uh, in which the United States um, begins to enhance its capacity to screen and exclude immigrants and moves yeah. towards uh, a model of exclusion and one that also has a connection uh, to national origin. And it eventually ripens into the national origins quotas of the 20s. And this is part of the statute as well? The, the Asiatic Bard Zone. Yeah, barring yeah. Uh, uh, individuals from those areas in green uh, uh, in uh, Asia. Okay, let's move on to uh, birthright citizenship. Um, uh, this has been a hot topic in recent years. Um, this is the notion that if you are born in the United States, you are an American citizen, no matter what the citizenship is of your parents. And if you may recall, in 2015, then-candidate Donald Trump said this, a woman gets pregnant, she's nine months, she walks across the border, she has the baby in the United States, and we take care of the baby for 85 years I don't think so. Um, and the, the, it is estimated that there are as many as 300,000 babies born in the United States every year of unauthorized immigrant parents. Uh, there's, there's a term called anchor baby. There's an industry for birth tourism, foreigners coming to this country and uh, uh, simply uh, solely for the reason of, of, of giving birth. And so... Um, there, there's, you can understand uh, some of the feeling, um, but what, what does the Constitution say about, about this topic, birthright citizenship? We saw it earlier, if you want to go back, Judge, yeah. um, and, uh, and the words of the Constitution are really right yeah. clear. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens in the United States. Um, and this is very personal for me because I, I, I brought my birth certificate. Um, I'm born in the United States. I'm born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the day I'm born, my parents aren't citizens. It doesn't say they, they need to be. Don't ask, don't tell. It doesn't matter, actually, you know, if my father is Indian or white or whatever, if he's a citizen or not. All persons born in the United States... Dot, 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 are citizens and I say, say, oh, Akil, but it says subject what to about, the jurisdiction. Well, I was just going to say the argument is yeah. the, the language subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And, and if you are and, here well, of parents who aren't citizens, are you really subject to the ooh, jurisdiction? Well, if I misbehave in any way, I'm going to yeah. be dragged into your court, Your Honor, and I sure <laughs> as heck am going to be subject yeah. to the jurisdiction of American laws if I misbehave in any way whatsoever. And that's what... The framers of the 14th Amendment said, building on English law, that's what the Supreme Court said in the case that you're going to, that you, you, yeah. you, you flashed on, Wong Kim Ark, the Supreme Court said, here's who's excluded. Um, in England, um, the, the folks who are excluded are children of ambassadors and diplomats, okay? They're, in effect, treated as, like, foreign uh, extensions of their, their foreign countries in the U.S. Embassy. And they're not subject to the jurisdiction. Right, they really aren't. They have ambassadorial point. immunity and the like. Um, and if there's an invading army that has uh, occupied English territory, if you're born behind, you know, that line, you're not really subject to, to English. It's occupied um, territory, and there are whole sorts of special rules about occupied law. And in America, we add one... Third, I, and this goes all the way back to cases from early 1600s in Britain, Calvin's case. So, so this is a very old British idea when the framers of the 14th Amendment constitutionalized it. But in America, we add one additional element to take account of American uniqueness, exceptionalism. If you're a member of an Indian tribe, a quasi-sovereign Indian tribe, and tribal membership is important, Elizabeth Warren. If you have to be a member of a tribe, um, then you're seen as part of like a quasi-sovereign, separate regime, once again, not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Those are the only exceptions. Tribal Indians, occupying armies, and children of 
diplomats. And that's what Wong Kim Ark says really yeah. emphatically. It's the also case. important to understand the, the purpose of that clause of the 14th Amendment, which was to overrule the Dred Scott decision in which the Supreme Court decided that uh, blacks could not be citizens of the United States because they were not understood to be eligible for citizenship by the framers of the Constitution. And, and I think the idea behind that is that uh, you, you have a, a, rel- a relatively universal rule granting citizenship at birth, and it's not a matter for courts to decide or for the mores of the time to determine whether someone can be based on citizen uh, citizenship can be based based on, on race. Uh, so it, it really is animated by the view that that ought not determine whether someone can be citizens. So Wong Kim Ark was uh, a cook. Uh, he was a Chinese cook. He was born in San Francisco in 1873 of parents who were born in, in, in China. And uh, so he lived in San Francisco uh, all of his life, and then he went back to China for a trip. He actually got married, had a child, came back, and then he went back a second time. But the second time, when he tried to come back into the country, um, the government said, no, you, you, you can't come in. Uh, because in the meantime, the Chinese exclusion laws have been, have been passed. Um, and the government, the U.S. government, wanted to make him a test case. And so that they, 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 they actually kept him on ships for four months as the case uh, went up. Um, and then, however, to the government's surprise, uh, the, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of, of Wong Kim Ark. And so what's the reasoning of the court's decision? Uh, the, um, Christine gave you half of it, and I gave you the other half. So the text says everyone born in the United States, and he's born in San Francisco, California, is a citizen. And I gave you the history, um, the English history behind it. And Christina gave you the uh, Civil War American history. There was this horrible case called Dred Scott um, in which the Supreme Court said blacks can't be citizens. And the Constitution doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say mm-hmm. white. The Articles of Confederation did say white. South Carolina wanted it to say white at the time of, of, of the framing, and they lost on all of that. And blacks were citizens at the time of the Constitution. In several states, they fought in Washington's army. So the Supreme Court made up a race test in 1857, and Lincoln didn't think that was right, and his attorney general, Bates, didn't think that was right, and at the end of the war, they constitutionalized the Republican Party, their vision, blacks fought for the Union, they're the margin of victory, damn it, everyone born in the United States is a citizen, white, black, green, brown, whoever your parents are, with three exceptions, children of diplomats, invading army behind enemy lines, and tribal Indians living in quasi-sovereign tribal enclaves. The argument was that because the Chinese could not naturalize, uh, that their children also were not eligible for citizenship. And the back, Supreme Court Back to the 1790 yeah. statute that limited to free white right. persons. Uh, but the court rejects yeah. that because of the intervention of the 14th Amendment. And, and, and because ultimately my citizenship isn't based on my parents' citizenship. In some countries, that was the law. Yeah. Um, not, but, not in England. Not in England and now, and not in America. What if Wong Kim Mark had lost? What would that have meant for, for others, uh, German, English, Scotch, Irish? The court mentions that, yeah, uh, court and mentions it's, that. it's concerned that, about that possibility that yeah. Germans would not, their children would not be citizens. And, uh, so, so. And, and what would have meant, frankly, for constitutionalism if... Shortly after, only a generation after we, the people, in the midst of a bloody civil war, we emphatically put words in the Constitution that are about as clear as the English language is capable of being. And if we disregard that, then what the hell? I think it would have eventually happened is is Congress would have come in and adopted, uh, through its power to pass rules for naturalization, laws that would have mirrored the the vision that they were arguing for. But it would have taken time. Now, recently, uh, the president said he was thinking about changing this through executive order. Is that, is that possible? No. <laughs> he can't. I mean, he can try to do whatever he, he, he wants. You know, Glendower says he can summon spirits from the vasty deep. But Hotspur says, <laughs> so can any man, but will they come when you summon them? Yeah. Uh, the president can't do it by an executive order. Congress can't do it by a statute. A state can't do it by a statute, not in a box, not with a fox, you know, not in, 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 you know, in the rain, not with a train. 
Only a constitutional amendment can change something that's actually in the Constitution. There, right. there are some scholars who argue that Congress could change the rules through a statute. I don't think there's any, just about anyone who's not connected to the Trump administration making a claim that yeah. executive order and, can And that can would do certainly it. wind up in court. Yeah, um, that would definitely wind up in yeah. court. And um, I would say the only interesting question is whether it's um, uh, uh, any effort like that would be repudiated 9 0 which I think it would be. I'd actually give you even odds for 9-0 or, 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 or possibly 8-1 or 7-2. So we won't ask you who the one or two are. No, I, I, it's actually, I honestly, it's any. hard for me to imagine, in yeah. fact, because the text and the precedent and the history so emphatically align. Yeah. This is uh, uh, Wong Kim Ark's document. He put a photograph, got some white person to sign an affidavit so that he could get back into the country, uh, and, it, and it did not uh, work. So we're going to talk now about uh, uh, border security. And this is another uh, interesting slide from 1882. It is literally uh, individuals, multiracial people, building uh, a wall to keep out uh, the, uh, the Chinese. Uh, and uh, here's another wall, uh, 1870. Uh, and these are all political cartoons. The other one was from a magazine called The Puck. But... But so this concept of a wall has been with us for quite a while. Um, uh, Christina, why don't you tell us about, um, uh, I know you've done some work on, on, on uh, border security, the history of border enforcement and walls. So until the 1920s, um, what we might describe as border enforcement, it's not what we would call border enforcement today, but enforcement around the uh, edges of the United States was the ports of entry, usually seaports. Uh, and the, the border with Mexico was, was very porous. Um, and uh, up until the 1840s, um, it was, you know, much of the United States was Mexico. So um, that concept of a, a border was almost nonsensical, of a wall there was almost nonsensical. But by the, the 1920s, as the United States develops a series of laws trying to exclude people and starts to ratchet up the machinery of enforcement, uh, it, the Congress creates a border patrol. Uh, and it's in the 1920s that that Border Patrol originates, uh, recruited from ranchers and cowboys. It was a kind of a ragtag group of, of, of people with a low reputation uh, that eventually develops into the military-like force that exists on the border today. But it is really a phenomenon of the 20th century um, that uh, is a product of the same political climate that produced the 1917 Act, but that starts to shift to focus on what had been a very uh, cyclical, enmeshed relationship between the United States and and Mexico. Yeah. And Akhil, I mean, was border security on the minds of uh, the founding fathers? Emphatically so. Uh, And uh, you see it in the preamble. Uh, In order to form a more perfect union, where does that come from? That language is borrowed from the Union of Scotland and England of 1706-07, Scotland, England, Wales. Um, And um, here was the idea in a nutshell. You look around the world in 1787, and the only people who are free in the world are basically the Brits and the Swiss. And the Americans say, why is that? Uh, Because Britain's an island, and an island is actually defensible, and the Swiss have the Great Wall of the Alps. It's a natural wall. It's a natural rampart. Um, And... So um, uh, when you have a land border, here's the problem. Um, The fellow on the other side builds up his army, so you've got to build up yours, and he builds up his bigger, and you build up yours bigger, and then armies actually are used to suppress domestic liberty. This is South America today. Um, uh, We want to avoid all of that. The Brits actually avoid all of that, and they won't know it, but you look at a map of Europe in 1943, and the only people who are free are the Brits and the Von Trapp family in Switzerland, for the same reasons. It's, it's kind of hard to, to, you know, to cross the English Channel and to charge up the Alps, and, and what do you get when you get to the top? Um, um, so, um, so America wants to recreate create a freedom by creating a kind of island nation, like Great Britain. So the English but it Channel... wasn't, you know, the, the, the country was only a part of this... Because the continent. The what did they do about the Western part? They're not, um, they're, this is where, what yeah. Christine said, they're not quite imagining yeah. uh, what's going to happen when they get from sea to shining sea. They're trying, uh, and so the natural boundary originally was the Appalachians, and so they, mm. but they're trying to recreate an island nation. Here's why Americans are free. For the first hundred years, there's no standing army in peacetime of any significance because you can rely on a navy to defend yourself, and navies are less threatening to liberty. 
Yeah. So this is deep in American DNA. We want people to come over. I told you that pro-immigration, Franklin, says let them all come over. But George um, Washington, the Neutrality Proclamation, no entangling alliances. You can see it all the way through Woodrow Wilson. Stay, let them fight over there. We're going to hide behind our moat. And Christine says... This is a little weird because now by the time you get to actually what's now Texas and, and the West, oh, you're going to have land borders. Or when what about um, the, uh, the line uh, with, with Canada? Canada was originally invited in to be part of the United States under the Articles Confederation. They declined the invitation. Um, uh, so, so, but America, deep in its DNA, is trying uh, the effort initially to re- create an island nation on the model of Britain that's basically separate from Europe, and you see it even today with Brexit or something, this deep idea to separate yourself from the rest of the world. There's, there's that um, thing that's part of America's DNA from the beginning. Did, did it change at any point, or has that been the way it Well, as, as Christine is showing you, does that work with the, the Rio Grande is not the English Channel, you know, does that, and it doesn't go all the way to San Diego. So <laughs> does that work today? And, and what about this line, this just which is not really a defensible border between Canada and the United States. But as late as James K. Polk, they're saying 54-40 or fight, okay? Um, uh, and it's not 54-40. We settled for the 49th parallel because James K. Polk does not want to fight a two-front war. Ask any German, that's not a good idea to fight a two-front war. The von Schlieffen plan, World War II. So we decide we're going to kill the Mexicans rather than kill the, the Canadians, but listen, in 1812, we fight with the Canadians. In the Revolutionary War, we're fighting in Montreal, in, in Quebec. So, so this is an issue for much of American history. Okay, uh, we, we want to save time for questions. So what we're going to do now is do our last segment before questions, and, and that is to talk, we thought it would be, be nice to talk about some personal uh, stories uh, <laughs> to add a personal touch uh, in, in, in the context of, uh, of uh, immigration. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Akil. So um, Christina mentioned, but only briefly, the Immigration Act of 1924, which creates quotas. Maybe you can just tell them just a little bit about 24 because sure. it's, it's such an important yeah, so, act. So it creates a set of uh, national origin quotas that uh, links the number of people who can come from any given country to the number of people who were present in the United States. I, I believe it was the 1890 census. And there was a debate about whether it would be that census or the 1910 census. And obviously a great deal had changed in those 20 years in the composition of the country. And the use of that, uh, the numbers in, in, in 1890, was meant to prevent people from Southern and Eastern Europe from from entering the United States uh, and to to try to reduce the undesirable immigration essentially to a trickle. And and it worked for a time. And from places like India. There are no people from India in the United States in 1890. So under the quota, you can't actually immigrate from India to the United States. Okay. So my dad arises as my family story. Um, right before Brown versus Board of Education, 1953. But he comes as a student. He's a doctor. And he comes to the University of Michigan to get additional medical training. And he's going to have to go back because he's not allowed to stay because of the 1924 law. So he comes to the United States right before Brown versus Board of Education. And, um, and there are no Indians in America, basically. He goes off to Stanford uh, for a conference. And there were so few Indians in California um, that he like bumps into this fellow on the street and because they're both Indian, they start talking, you know, because there's no, there are no other Indians around. And the fellow says to him, you know, um, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you, you know, you look like, you know, when's the last time you had an Indian, you know, meal? He says, when I was in India, because there are no Indian restaurants, because there are no Indians. So the guy says, come on over to my house. You know, my mom's here. She'll make you a good Indian dinner. So my dad says, sure. Okay. But like, how did you get here? I says, ah. I came, this fellow he meets on the street, I came to study at the University of California at Berkeley, and World War II broke out, I enlisted in the American Army. And I fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and I'm a veteran, and because I fought, they let me become a citizen, they let me bring my parents over, connected to when blacks fight and, and they become citizens, and okay. So this is the nice lady, actually, who cooks my dad an Indian meal. Um, and I still have a picture of her, amazingly enough. And my dad says to her sort of jokingly, gee, you know, do you have a daughter who can cook like you? Um, and she says, well, since you mention it, actually, she's back in India. Um, she's a doctor. 
She'd love to come to the United States. You know, can you do anything for her? So my dad says, well, we'll see what I can do. And he arranges for her to become a resident at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, and uh, they get married two months later. They, we don't mess around in my family. And then they have a, a kid in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So that's your, so, so that nice lady, that was, that's my grandmother. Um, uh, is, and, is, that, is that you? Uh, natural born, American citizen. You know, you can call me an anchor baby if you like, because my dad's not a citizen. And my mom's not a citizen. And so don't clap yet, because my dad's going to have to go back. The 19... 19- 24 Act is still on the books. Lyndon Johnson hasn't become president yet. This is 1958, Brown versus Board of Education. Ernie was there for that case. It's it's still in the background. They don't want people from India in the United States. My dad's going to have to go back. So I can stay, you know, but good luck with that. Um, So I didn't tell you what kind of doctor my dad is. My dad's a urologist. Urologists take care of old men and their body parts. And one of my dad's patients, because he's right outside of Detroit, is a great industrialist. Makes, um, Detroit's the capital of the world. Um, and they're making cars for the world. And this great auto, auto uh, uh, magnate, his name is Fisher, they make the bodies for General Motors cars, says, oh, I hear you're going to have to go. You've been such a good doctor. You've taken such good of my body parts. I'm going to call up my... My friend, the senator from Michigan, he's on speed dial, and he'll arrange for you to, to, to stay. So Senator Philip Hart from Michigan, you know, uh, pulls some strings, only in America, so I get to stay. Hooray, my dad gets to stay. Um, uh, um, and then we can um, flash forward to the, the next one. Okay, so, uh, but my grandmother um, passes away, and look, people who come to America are very brave. You know, they give up their whole um, lives. Um, and, and my grandmother made sacrifices so that we could stay in the United States. When she dies, um, she's a Hindu. She wants her ashes taken back to the Ganges River. It falls to me as her grandson to do that. I go with my parents, go um, to the Ganges River. I deposit her ashes. I, it's a total immersion experience, and I'm an idiot because... The Ganges River is dirty, so like an open sewer. So I get very sick, kind of uh, uh, lose 20 pounds, massive dysentery. Oh, it's horrible. Um, but we're staying um, in India with my dad's medical school roommate, his best friend, and her daughter takes care of me. She went to the same all-women's medical school that my mom did. And so I leave, and I said, well, why don't you come visit the United States? You know, you can check out, you know. And she comes, and, uh, and we get married a month later. Um, and that's my wife. And she is now a naturalized American citizen, uh, only in America. Is that put in the right order? Yes, yeah. that is, that's a, a good order. So this is... Uh, a sleepy southern town in 1965 known as Miami, Florida. And uh, those are my grandparents the day they arrive uh, from Cuba. My father was a teenager when the Cuban Revolution happened, and they sent him to the United States to live with an aunt who was already here, thinking things would blow over. Um, (laughs) And that, of course, didn't happen. But he lived by himself, well, with his extended family for five years in the country until there was an opportunity for my grandparents to leave. Uh, And it's uh, thanks to Lyndon Johnson um, that they are here, uh, which is... Uh, a little bit difficult for Cubans to accept because most of them are not Democrats. Uh, but uh, the, in 1965, um, as a result of a series of uh, political events, uh, Lyndon Johnson declares that anyone who wants to come to the United States from Cuba can come. And Castro decides anyone who wants to go can go. Uh, and so my grandparents one day decide to get on a plane, and they're allowed to take uh, one suitcase of the things that they own, uh, and they come to the United States and uh, see my father, who they hadn't seen for for five years at the airport. Um, And when my uh, grandmother died, we discovered, this was about six years ago, uh, the red suitcase that she had with her on that Mm -hmm. flight from Cuba. She'd kept it uh, for 50 years. Um, And then this is a picture of my father uh, with his older brother, um, who uh, 
also uh, arrived in the United States separately from him. He was older when the revolution happened and was part of a resistance uh, and ended up uh, a political prisoner, uh, eventually released uh, and allowed to leave the United States. Um, but it's essentially thanks to the willingness of uh, first the Kennedy and then the Johnson administrations to do what's called a parole people into the United States, to use the power, the discretionary powers uh, that the uh, president has under the immigration laws uh, to admit people for uh, humanitarian and uh, public safety reasons. Uh, and some might say, and I, I may say this in, in some of my work, that presidents have exploited that power um, and used it in ways Congress did not intend, including to admit tens of thousands of refugees through a system that Congress had not itself authorized. But um, I'm very grateful for uh, Johnson's willingness to exploit his powers uh, <laughs> and to allow my uh, Cuban side of the family to become American. And that's a precursor of DACA, in a way. In a way, in a way, yeah. It is a form of discretion. Uh, so this is my grandfather uh, in, in front of his uh, uh, apartment building in Chinatown. And this was in the 70s. But he came to this country in 1916. And as you recall, we had Chinese exclusion laws on the books. So he came in illegally. He bought a piece of paper pretending to be the son of a U.S. citizen. And that's how he was able to come uh, into this uh, country. Uh, But he was able uh, to become a citizen uh, of the United States. He was naturalized in 1947, and this is his naturalization certificate. And I believe he was sworn in in my courthouse, where I sit now. Because in 1947, uh, the back of it says it's sworn to an open court. And in 1947, there was only one courthouse in the Southern District of New York, uh, where I sit um, now. Um, But because he became a citizen, uh, he was able to bring us here. This is uh, us in 1955 in Hong Kong. I'm sitting in my father's lap. Because of immigration reform and because finally uh, the laws were changed, my grandfather was able uh, to bring us here uh, to this country. And so I was born in Hong Kong and I came in uh, 1956. This is my mother's original Chinese passport. And what they did was they put the kids into the, the mom's passport. Mm. We didn't, we yeah, didn't have our reason. own uh, passport. But there was a page uh, devoted to me. This is my page. This is my uh, Chinese name. But it also showed that we were admitted under a statute called the Refugee Relief Act of 1953. So we were actually admitted as refugees, uh, 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 people who were fleeing communism and and. And so uh, it, it, it's great that we actually were political refugees and allowed to come into this country. And this is literally us coming to America uh, that is on the Pan Am bus uh, going to the airport. That, that's me uh, with my dad. My, you can see the silhouette of my mom behind the window. And uh, uh, we're on the way uh, to the airport to take the plane uh, to come uh, to America. And uh, one of the things I miss about being a trial judge, we were talking about the differences between trial court and appellate court, is doing the naturalization ceremony. When you are a trial judge, you get to swear in new citizens. And whenever I swore in new citizens, I would take that certificate of my grandfather's and take it down and show it to the new citizens as I told them the story of my grandfather. Um, That completes uh, our discussion. Uh, We will now... Thank you. We, we have a bunch of questions. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll do a few of them in any event. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, uh, I, this might be difficult. Is Congress's authority to make immigration laws rooted in some plenary power, the Commerce Clause uh, that you were referring to earlier, or both? If the Supreme Court decided it was the latter, that is, both with parts of the immigration uh, a natu- Nationality Act be unconstitutional? Two-part question. Well, there are two issues. Does Congress have general power to legislate? And I think, yes, it does. Where You could say just structurally we're a, um, a nation state, and you wouldn't want individual states to be able to decide um, this question. And there are constitutional texts, the Naturalization Clause, um, the, the Foreign Commerce Clause. But then... 
what does plenary mean? Does that mean that no rights apply at all? Does that mean you could have immigration laws that say you have to promise you're going to vote Republican in order to come to the United States or only um, Christians are allowed to come to the United States? And I would say, no, Bill of Rights provisions do properly um, apply. They might apply slightly differently to people coming in um, than to people who are already here. Um, you don't maybe get the same kind of full due process when, if you're a foreigner applying for a visitor's visa in New Delhi that you might get if you're a green card holder and, uh, and, and uh, married to an American citizen who's been here for 30 years and just leaves to go back for a family funeral and is, is coming back. But I would say the two prongs are, does the federal government generally have the power to legislate? Yeah. Um, is that... Unlimited? No. There are proper constitutional limits on that having to do with no race discrimination, no sex discrimination, no religious discrimination, fair procedures, um, and the like. And and what's a fair procedure might be somewhat different in the immigration context than uh, domestically. Now, I have no idea if Christine is going to agree with me about that. Well, no. So I I do agree with everything that you just said, but the, the concept of the plenary power also relates back to Uh, a set of Supreme Court opinions from the late 19th century uh, where the question of whether Congress had the power to enact the Chinese Exclusion Acts uh, was was presented to the court. And instead of grounding its uh, decision that it was within Congress's power in the Naturalization Clause or the Commerce Clause, uh, the Supreme Court says, well, the power to exclude inheres in national sovereignty. Uh, It's almost like it's extra-constitutional or foundational to the existence of a nation and, and need not be mm-hmm. explicit in, in the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and that those opinions have sometimes been read uh, as uh, giving the federal government uh, whatever power it wants, uh, subject to no limitations, to exclude and deport. And, and I think that reading is too broad uh, for the reasons that Akhil suggested. But you do see inklings of it still in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence prudence and its decision uh, to find there was no legal problem with President Trump's travel ban uh, last term reflected the view that when it comes to matters of national security and exclusion at the border, that the the president's power has to be um, really understood to be something that courts cannot look behind. They have to accept any plausible reason for the exercise of the power. This this relates to a couple of of questions, but uh, in, in that context, Presidential power versus congressional power. Can the president do something that is inconsistent with a statute? One of the implications of the theoretical debate that um, Christina mentioned about is it an inherent power um, or is it rooted in congressional text? I prefer to root in congressional text in part as a matter of separation of powers. Uh, So there's at least three issues. Is it, should this be decided by states? No, of course not. So the federalism question is the United States. Now, within the United States, if you think it's inherent in sovereignty or something like that, you might say, oh, it's the president. But if you think, actually, that words like naturalization and commerce, which are in Article One, are important, it, Congress becomes a preeminent body. And a third issue, there's a three, there are three branches, is what about the role of the courts? You might think even if there are some limits on the federal government's uh, 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 powers from the Bill of Rights and elsewhere, you might wonder whether courts are particularly good at making all the factual determinations. Let's imagine, for example, that Trump, since you mentioned the travel ban case, actually his real reasons for treating certain countries differently from other countries are not just about where there's terrorism and where there's not. He well, could wants- you just back up? What is the constitutional issue in the travel ban case for those who, 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 who don't know? Is it permissible f- for the federal government and the president in particular to, for example, say people from certain countries can't come into the United States easily and can from other countries when the statute hasn't really clearly said any of that? There was also a claim uh, of a violation of the Establishment Clause, that the the reason for uh, the exclusions that were in the executive order uh, were anti-Muslim animus. And there's a non-discrimination component. And and what did the court say about that? Um, Well, uh, they five to four upheld President Trump's um, uh, policy. One thing they did is they say when we look 
at the face of the policy itself, it actually isn't a Muslim ban. Um, countries with lots of Muslims, like India, aren't covered by it. Um, it doesn't say Muslims, so they looked formally. Um, here's Just at the face of it. On and the what fa- about the plaintiff's arguments that if you look at statements of the president when he was campaigning, his representatives, do they show an animus uh, against mm-hmm. Muslims? They, uh, the court says that as long that as was the there's argument. yeah yeah as long as there is a facially plausible reason, these other reasons don't matter. Which to mm-hmm. me was the the breathtaking dimension of the case. And, I, I, and, and to me was it would have been breathtaking otherwise because there's not a single case in the history of the United States where a, um, the just because a president mouths off. That actually has given federal courts, who are limited, with all due respect, Your Honor, the ability to basically tell the President of the United States that he can't actually exercise foreign affairs in facially neutral ways. And here's what I was about to get to. Let's suppose it actually was pretext. Let's suppose one of the reasons he's actually treating some countries differently than others Cuba gets treated, Cuban refugees differently than from the Dominican Republic, has to do with all sorts of other complicated foreign power um, uh, um, uh, deals um, and negotiations. They're being mean to him about this, so he's smiting them with that. And judges don't know any of that and can't. Would that be constitutional if the president said, I am doing this because I am anti-Cuban? Would that be constitutional? What it means to be, actually, yes, actually, because you know what? The, the, The... It's not up to courts to decide whether we're at war with Cuba or not, whether we're at war with Nazi Germany. Countries are not ethnicities as a formal matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are people of all races from Cuba. There are people of all races and religions in India. So, So, yes, I'm saying, actually, I think it's easy to say the federal government gets to have different policies for different countries. And actually I, th- I think has this is where, where Akhil and I might finally diverge. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is to say, I don't disagree with that point. The federal government distinguishes all the time on the basis of, of countries. nationality. Countries. Yeah. Right. But the issue in this case was whether the true motivation was anti-Muslim bias. Yeah. It was not about uh, distinguishing for national security reasons certain and countries if it were from a, others. And if it were a state... Courts would look at that. That was the Yik Wo versus Hopkins case where we talked about Chinese laundries because the court basically said, this looks facially neutral, but actually there's animus. My claim is there is not one case in the history of the United States where they have done that to the president right. as opposed to there's well, also, you know, in the, there's in the also course. Not- I was just saying the course of the decision, uh, ironically, uh, the majority overrules Korematsu. Um, and after many years, I mean, back, well, back then, uh, General DeWitt, not the president, General DeWitt said military necessity. And the court took it up for face value. Yes. And then later on, it was proven to be wrong. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that the, the counterpoint to what you said about the court never having told the president that he can't make a decision of this sort yes. is the court has also never upheld uh, an immigration uh, exclusion uh, that is based on racial animus. Um, and so it, it's permitted the Chinese exclusion cases because it believed that there was not a, a privilege to enter the United States and the the, the law of equal protection and um, anti-race discrimination had not yet evolved. But since, uh, since the mid-20th century, the court has never said you can... Uh, discriminate, the federal government can discriminate mm. on the basis of race. They can discriminate on the basis of nationality, but not the basis of race or, or religion. And, and so that's where uh, this opinion but crosses here, a line. But well, here's one. Look at the numbers. Okay, in Yikwo versus Hopkins, there was animus, and they were, only impo- they were only enforcing a certain laundry ordinance against Chinese Americans. Here, when you basically look at the numbers, the countries with the most Muslims in the world aren't covered by the so-called ban, and the, uh, several of the countries that actually were covered don't have a lot of Muslims. So animus alone, Trump mouthing off on Twitter does not unconstitutionality of f- federal policy make. Do we have time for more or one more question? Okay. Um, by the way, in Yik Wo, uh, the ordinance was applied to 200 Chinese applicants. It was applied to one uh, right. white person. Right, so it was overwhelming, wait, wait. 199 to one. The one was a woman. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Uh, last question. Is the anti-immigration sentiment that is so globally prevalent today worse than it has been in any other period in modern history? 
I don't think it's worse, no. Um, I think it's kind of of a piece with our history, but I don't think it's worse I would than say, the era of Chinese exclusion. I would say this, too, will pass. It's better, in general, when we step back. We're an historical society. We have to have historical sensibility. We have a much more multiracial electorate than ever before in our history. Thanks to Lyndon Johnson, that 1965 act, we don't have country quotas anymore. It doesn't say white anymore in the laws. Um, so people can come from India. Look, look at the Silicon Valley. Can come from, from China. Can come from Latin America. Far more than ever before in our history. And you, just, you have to have historical sensibility. Okay, it's not true today, and this too will pass, and you have to vote next time around. Okay, but the last president of the United States was named Barack Hussein Obama, and that is unimaginable in 1790, and it's unimaginable in 1890, and it's unimaginable even in 19... So I actually say, net-net, we will get through this. We're not going to go back to Korematsu. It's now overruled. As bad as this is right now, um, it's better than much of American history, actually. There was a period of time when there were many massacres, not well-known, lynchings and massacres, of, of Chinese out west, you know, dozens of them uh, at a time, and it's not well known. So things were worse then. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.